crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program. And on today's program, we're going to talk about archaeology, uh, but we're going to be talking about it from a slightly more unusual point of view, and that's from the perspective of the major media, archaeology in the major media. And we're going to be talking specifically about King David. King David and a recent piece that has come out over the past week, a recent large expose, uh, sort of a Did David Exist expose that's come out in a major media publication. But before we get stuck into that, I want to, uh, to frame this by talking about what we've been seeing over the past few weeks, and that's a whole lot of statues coming down, a whole lot of historical figures, prominent historical figures, being torn down, being vandalized. We, we're seeing even U.S. presidents being torn down. Uh, I know Ulysses S. Grant, a statue or statues of him have come down. Uh, George Washington, the first U.S. president. I know there's talk about Theodore Roosevelt. Well, not even talk about that. That's actually scheduled to come down, the Theodore Roosevelt statue. And not just by the hand of of the mob, as we've seen in these videos of all these statues coming down. That statue is coming down at the behest of New York, New York's mayor himself, Bill de Blasio. So we're seeing statues coming down. We're seeing a a cover up or a a revision of history and historical figures. And we're seeing this in another sense as well, with a much more ancient figure, and that is King David. King David. Did King David exist? There's sort of a struggle, a war going on between archaeologists, between even journalists, historians. What was the historicity of King David? Did King David ever even exist? Should we should he be torn down from you could say the hearts and minds of people who believe the Bible, people who who have a respect toward the Bible or, or even secular individuals who who don't believe the Bible but who believe in the historical account of a lot of these kings, such as King David? Should King David come down? And that came to the fore over the past week with a major media publication in the New Yorker magazine and published online uh, entitled Built on Sand in Search of King David's Lost Empire, a piece by Ruth Margalit, a sort of a uh, an expose, a did David exist type expose. And these aren't few and far between. There's been about four or five of them that come to mind over the past year. Talking about did David exist? Did did the uh, other biblical figures surrounding him, uh, did they exist? Did David's kingdom exist as this grand kingdom that the Bible makes it out to be? And so this is, this is what several of these major media publications have, uh, have been featuring. And the latest one, as I say, over the past week has been the New Yorker, uh, again, titled In Search of King David's Lost Empire. And these articles have a brilliant potential. They're a lengthy digest of archaeological discoveries. They, take, uh, they, they reach a large audience and take a large readership through places people can only dream about, uh, interviewing all sorts of archaeologists and scholars in their field and presenting a whole lot of evidence and coming to a conclusion based on that evidence. That is, if they've been done right. And unfortunately, precious few of them 
R. Now, this New Yorker piece, it's a giant, uh, about 8,400 words long, and there's nothing wrong with that. I like a good long article, a long, detailed expose. Uh, And again, the aim of this article is to examine that archaeological evidence for the biblical kingdom of King David. Now, here's a spoiler alert. If you haven't read the article, you can stay tuned anyway. This article contains, uh, uh, concludes that there's very little, if any, evidence of King David himself, let alone his kingdom. Now, the big problem with this article isn't so much the conclusion. If that's an author's conclusion based on a full presentation of the evidence, that's fine. That's up to the author. They can conclude whatever they like. Personally, I'd I'd strongly contest that kind of a conclusion. Many, many, many other archaeologists uh, would do the same. But if that's what the author wants to conclude, then that's what they conclude. But the point of these articles, though, is in that big body of text to lay out the evidence thoroughly so that the readership can make up their own minds. The author can do whatever they like at the end. The readership can make up their own minds. But the glaring problem with this article is that it barely references any archaeology of the 8,400 words that make up this article. I passed it and took it apart and tried to see uh, what what kind of percentage of the article actually talks about archaeology. And of those 8,400 words, only about 1,200 concentrate on general archaeological discoveries. So that's about one-seventh of the article actually talks about general archaeology, uh, archaeology discoveries. And of that, only 600, roughly 600 words relate to archaeology relevant to the time of King David. So that's about one-fourteenth of this article relates to archaeology relevant to the time of King David's reign. And we'll get into where the rest of the word count went further on. But but from the outset of the article, the author's view is pretty unambiguous. Here's a quote uh, from the introduction. In the long war over how to reconcile the Bible with historical fact, the story of David stands at ground zero. There is no archaeological record of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. There is no Noah's Ark, nothing from Moses. Joshua did not bring down the walls of Jericho, so on and so forth, end of quote. Now, I won't go into this. Uh, it's, it's not true, those, those statements. You can debate the historicity of them, but that, that paragraph isn't true, and we'll be having an article come out on this subject that, uh, that'll hopefully go into this in, t- in some more detail. But suffice it to say, the author's viewpoint is pretty clear. And then the author, Ruth Margulich, she gets into the crux of it, the city at the center of it all. Uh, quote, Jerusalem of the 10th century BC, so this is the time of King David, is an archaeological void. I can take a shoe box and put inside everything we have from that period, Yuval Gadot, an archaeologist from Tel Aviv University, said. End of quote. So here we've got the situation framed. The author paints the situation as, uh, I believe she refers to David as ground zero. So we've got some archaeological evidence after King David's reign, but we've got nothing from before. And again, that's that's not the case. And if you've been reading Watch Jerusalem for any length of time, you'll see that that is uh, outright outrageous, really. Uh, but, but the author's viewpoint is that King David st- stands at ground zero. And so we, here we read that uh, according to this, this author, Jerusalem of the 10th century BCE is an archaeological void. She quotes Yuval Gadot. A, an archaeologist who works in Jerusalem, who has an excavation site in Jerusalem, and he says, I can take a shoebox and put inside everything we have from that period, from the 10th century BC period. 
So if that's indeed the case, then the article is over before it starts. There's, there'd be no wonder why only one fourteenth of the article describes any sort of Davidic archaeology. But that isn't the case. That isn't the case. 10th century Jerusalem isn't an archaeological void of which the discoveries could only fit in a shoebox. The article never mentions the large tower of Jerusalem. This is a 10th century BCE structure on the Ophel. In fact, the article doesn't mention the Ophel at all, and the numerous archaeological discoveries that have happened there, let alone the 10th century BCE archaeological discoveries from the Ophel. But the article doesn't mention the large tower. This has been dated to the 10th century BCE. Uh, It's a tower still largely obscured below ground. But if it was fully revealed, we know the outline of it because of uh, tunneling excavations. So we know the outline, we know the size, we know the height of it. And if this 10th century tower were excavated, it would constitute the tallest known structure in all Israel to the time of Herod the Great. That's 2,000 years ago. So for for a thousand years, this structure would have stood taller than any other remains that we have in, in Israel. So there's no mention of this in the article. There's no mention of the 10th century BCE uh, wall, the straight wall, as it's called, or Solomon, Solomonic wall, as it's colloquially called, a 70-meter-long wall up to six meters high in points, and a gatehouse that is related. There's a lot more than that can fit in a shoebox, that's for sure. And this, this is the point, because the shoebox quote is probably true, but herein lies the rub, if I can quote Shakespeare. It's deceptively taken out of context by the author. She quotes Yuval Gadot, who talks about, I can, I can take all of our 10th century stuff and put it in a shoebox. So this is taken out of context by the author and gives the impression that in all Jerusalem, because she paints it as Jerusalem of the 10th century is an archaeological void, and that in all Jerusalem there's only a shoebox worth of 10th century discoveries, discoveries relevant to that time period of Kings David and Solomon and Rehoboam when in fact only Gadot's excavation area, Yuval Gadot's Jerusalem excavation site, it's a Hellenistic site, Roman site, Byzantine site. They've, they've found late material from the site. And so within his site, it's probably true, they've found maybe a shoebox-sized amount of 10th century iron to a material. And there's another reason for this. There's, there's a possible... Uh, reference by Josephus, the historian to this site, who who talks about this site uh, being raised to the ground during the Hellenistic time, during a late period. So it, that's another topic to to tuck into, but uh, but that would help explain why there is so little 10th century material from Yuval Gadot's site. But certainly that's not the case from Jerusalem. As a whole. Now, what is mentioned in the middle of the article as a small section, very briefly, is Dr. Mazar's, Dr. Elot Mazar's discovery of King David's Palace. King David's Palace, as she, uh, as she called it in her press relief, uh, release, or uh, in the more secular uh, scientific terminology, the uh, large stone structure. So this is mentioned in the middle of the article. Uh, It's called a large public building in the article. And the article says that it neatly corresponds with a verse in the book of Samuel, which describes a palace that the the king of Tyre built for David. So it's pretty good. It's a here, here we've got this, this edifice that, that does neatly correspond with a verse in the book of Samuel describing a palace of the king of Tyre. David. But the article describes that this palace was nearly impossible to date conclusively. 
And then it jumps into how the new discovery of this palace, quote, drew immediate rebukes. Now, what wasn't mentioned in the article, okay, so this palace is briefly mentioned, uh, a large public building found by Dr. Elot Mazar uh, that neatly corresponds with a verse about David's palace in the book of Samuel. So this was very briefly mentioned, but what wasn't mentioned was the size of the building, walls more than 20 feet thick, the royal Phoenician-style architecture, which would match up with the account of the Phoenician king of Tyre, King Hiram, who came to build it. Uh, it, It didn't mention the fact that dating wasn't nearly impossible, but that dating was made through pottery reading as well as carbon dating. It briefly mentions a stepped stone wall. Uh, It's actually a buttress, more of a buttress-type terrace structure. But it doesn't mention the 10th century dating for that. And it doesn't mention that that structure, that stepped structure, is the, the largest exposed structure in all Israel, again, to the time of Herod. So if all this evidence was omitted then, If none of it was talked about in this article, this 8,400-word article, again, if only one-fourteenth of the article was dedicated to discoveries of the period of King David, of the 10th century period, and discoveries that are contested around that period, it begs the question, where did the word count go? Where did the word count go? What did the article talk about? Put simply, the New Yorker article is not about archaeology. In fact, it's hardly even about King David. Rather, the piece is a detailed biographical sketch of the famous anti-David theorist, archaeologist, Israel Finkelstein. Here's a case in point. King David's name is mentioned through the article 55 times. Israel Finkelstein, his name is mentioned 80 times. Dr. Elot Mazar, she's Jerusalem's chief archaeologist, you could say. She's excavated in the city for over 50 years and has led excavations in the city for over, over the course of 30 years. She is mentioned only eight times in the Bible. Uh, in sorry, in, in the article. Israel Finkelstein, he's quoted nearly 40 times throughout this article. Dr. Mazar, she's only quoted once. And when you when you think about it, Israel Finkelstein has never excavated in Jerusalem. Dr. Mazar, she's, she's been leading excavations in Jerusalem, numerous excavations over the course of 30 years. She's only quoted once. Israel Finkelstein nearly 40 times. And it's actually Israel Finkelstein that tours the writer through Jerusalem. It's not Dr. Mazar that does so. It's Israel Finkelstein who has never excavated in the city. Now, it's unfortunate that in setting up this lengthy, broad expose on the historicity of King David, in setting it up this way, the author instead chose to feature the life and times of the, quote, generous, witty, courtly, overwhelmingly charming Israel Finkelstein, a Tel Aviv University scholar and archaeologist who, as we've talked about on this program, so often, he's, he's an archaeologist who's built a career on challenging the perspective, uh, the perception of King David, and that he was anything more than a tribal hillbilly, if he even existed. So rather than paint a broad and detailed picture of the archaeology and, and evidence for or against King David's reign, the author instead paints a broad picture of of Israel Finkelstein, of his life, 
the it talks about the emigration of his father from Ukraine, his father's talent uh, with with sports, his orchard career. Talks about Israel Finkelstein's uh, math skills as a child and how his father wanted him to be a nuclear physicist. It talks about Israel Finkelstein's playboy days, what happened to his first marriage, what happened to his second marriage, why he no longer plays tennis. It goes through a whole litany of different things, why he does Pilates. No joke. Uh, there's there's a full gamut. It talks about his, his everything from his slim physique to the furniture in his office to the cashmere material of his sweater to what he nicknames his electric bike. No joke. So you wonder where the word count went. Here it is. Careful details in the article talk about uh, how Finkelstein's uh, janitor in the university that he, he attends, how the janitor refers to him as Sean Connery, how Finkelstein refers to himself as the great Jew, quote-unquote, Baruch Spinoza, uh, different titles he gives himself. Uh, throughout the article, professors at different colleges around the world are quoted, uh, are cited from France all the way to the USA, he, just heaping praise on Israel Finkelstein. So you'd just about be forgiven for thinking he was the Messiah in this piece. Uh, and indeed, jokingly, he is quoted in this piece referring to himself as quote, the greatest savior of Jerusalem, unquote, for his theory, uh, for a personal theory of his about where the original city was concentrated. The, it, it's really just a fawning account of Israel Finkelstein. The author names him as a, an eminent biblical archaeologist with vision who has pushed Israeli research to the forefront of science, to quote a few excerpts there. And as a side, if David really existed, he was only ever a small-time tribal hillbilly. So this is, this is an on-the-side subject here. It's really Israel Finkelstein and a biography of this man that is at the center of the article. But before we get more into, into that, why, why is King David painted as this nomadic hillbilly then uh, by Israel Finkelstein. Now, the article briefly describes uh, how Finkelstein came to this conclusion, talks about his excavation of the site of Megiddo and how he compared his discoveries to those of a handful of other sites, and then his, his subsequent publication of his theory in 1996 that the plethora of grand 10th century BCE Davidic and Solomonic period finds, that this plethora of finds should be shunted forward about 100, 150 years to the time of King Omri, that these were the result of a much later king's buildings, and that the 10th century time period of King David, King Solomon, was just a void was a nomadic, kingdomless void. So the author details uh, Finkelstein's publication of this theory. And what happened afterwards? This is a quote from the article. Finkelstein thought he had settled the issue. The scholarly world would accept his theory, which came to be known as the low chronology, and move on. I was naive, he told me. I didn't know what kind of battle I was getting myself into. End of quote. So it won't come as a surprise, obviously, to listeners that that's not how the scientific world works. Issues, as, as it was characterized in this article, issues such as this aren't just settled by a radical new theory, uh, accepted by the scholars, and then moved along. But then the article continues to paint... Uh, the account as a beleaguered Finkelstein just trying to get acceptance for his radical new views on King David and King Solomon among a Bible-thumping realm of archaeologists. And if you know the archaeological world, it's very secular, and you can hardly 
characterize it as Bible thumping. So as a biography, as a biography, this New Yorker article is very cleverly written, even humorous in parts. It's it's a pretty decent biography, but the trouble is that it is presented under the pretense of examining archaeological evidence for the historicity of King David, of which it does not. All right, we'll take a quick break there. Stay with us. After the break, we'll go through uh, another individual brought out in this article, Professor Garfinkel, and we'll talk about what the article had to say about him and then the conclusions that the article drew and the response from the archaeological community to this article. Stay with us. KPCG 101.3 Trumpet Radio is your source of understanding. Trumpet Radio broadcasts from the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College in Edmond, Oklahoma and online at kpcg.fm. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. Welcome back, I should say. We've been going through the uh, recent big publication in a major media outlet, The New Yorker, a, a sort of an expose on King David. Did he really exist? What does archaeology have to say? And if you've read this article, you'll know uh, that the article essentially concludes that if David even existed, he certainly was nowhere near anything like the biblical account of him or his kingdom. He was more of a tribal hillbilly. But as we've been going through in this program, and if you've missed the first part of the program, do go online, watchjerusalem.co.il to listen to the first part. Uh, But as we've been going through, the article wasn't even about King David, and it contains hardly any archaeology uh, to speak of, uh, as we've talked about, only one fourteenth of the article was even about archaeology relative to King David. Instead, it was quite a good biography of a very anti-David archaeologist, Israel Finkelstein. But as I mentioned before the break, now we'll get into another archaeologist that's that's brought out in this article, certainly with not near as much detail and as Israel Finkelstein. But the article uh, does bring out Professor Yossi Garfinkel about halfway through the article. So we'll pick it up here and talk about how the article uh, describes him and then how the article concludes and the reaction to this article. So again, about halfway through, Yossi Garfinkel is introduced. He uh, He's more in the conservative camp for the historicity of David's kingdom. He's had some really significant groundbreaking excavations, uh, excuse the pun, no pun intended, groundbreaking excavations at the significant sites of Kerbet Kayafa and Kerbet Arai at the these around 1000 BCE sites these two sites, and he's done much to highlight actually evidence for the biblical account of King David and David's kingdom. So it was it was good to read that, okay, here we go, the, the article's starting to, to now bring out Yossi Garfinkel. Here we go, we're going to get into some archaeological evidence. Uh, this will likely be for King David, because that's, that's what has been shown through Yossi Garfinkel's excavations. But unfortunately, again, instead of archaeological discoveries, instead of that evidence that we need to to present in, in a clean, clear, unbiased manner for the readership to draw their conclusions about the historicity of King David, instead of that, the New Yorker article was more interested in various details about Yossi Garfinkel and the way he excavates and politics and funding rather than the evidence found at his sites. Uh, Time was taken instead of looking at that evidence to level a thinly veiled criticism of Garfinkel's excavation methods. Uh, I believe it, it referred to his excavations as a topographical Tetris and 
thinly veiled criticism of how the different squares in the excavation were much deeper than others and different periods. Uh, and criticisms like these that I'm sure Garfinkel would, uh, would, would take up and would refute. Uh, but again, this is what's presented rather than the evidence for or against King David. Any evidence. This is what the, the article describes as excavation methods, uh, his fresh-faced Australian student labor uh, talks about one of the Australian students that nearly tipped over a wheelbarrow. Uh, the article talks in some detail about how easily distractible Garfinkel is. It takes the time to quote, of course, Israel Finkelstein's opinion of Yossi Garfinkel. This is what Finkelstein said of Garfinkel, quote, When I sit in a conference abroad and he goes on stage and says primitive things, I want to die from embarrassment. That's what word count is taken up in the article to describe. Not evidence for or against King David, but concourse. Just, uh, just personality attacks, uh, political uh, motives, putting political motives on excavations, funding bias, uh, because that's what the article describes as well. It, it, it continues by at some length talking about a French-Algerian woman who made a lot of money from a homeopathic remedy and who is supporting uh, Yossi Garfinkel and who, quote, wants to scientifically prove that one item or one word in the Bible is accurate. So that's biased. We can't have that. Again, no evidence for or against King David, no evidence relative to his reign. Again, only about 300 words of the article related to Garfinkel's archaeological discoveries combined from his two sites. Now, the article continues uh, over a, over a, a range of continuing subjects at uh, Garfinkel's excavation, comes back around to Jerusalem, again, barely mentions Dr. Elat Mazar, but it highlights the politics of, of excavating in Jerusalem. It accuses people excavating there of, of undermining the Palestinian cause, of, of uh, political uh, motivation to try and set up and establish the state of Israel. It describes various spats between archaeologists, uh, largely centered on Israel Finkelstein. So toward the toward the end of the article, maybe about the last third of the article, uh, as as we come back around full circle to Jerusalem, the author's being taken on a tour of. Uh, of Jerusalem by Israel Finkelstein, as as we discussed in the first segment, the uh, the excavations of Doctor Elat Mazar have already been very briefly discussed and dismissed in this article, and her discovery of King da- what she called well, as King David's palace, and so we that was talked about briefly in the article, and then Yossi Garfinkel's excavations, uh, or rather the politics and personalities behind the excavations rather than the excavations himself. But now we come again full circle to Jerusalem, Finkelstein's touring the author around. And this is what the article uh, quotes as they're touring around another excavation site. So not Dr. Elat Mazar's excavation site of David's palace, but this is another one. And this is a quote from the article, quote, What Finkelstein doesn't see at this site is evidence of a palace, or a temple, or a fortified wall, or an inscription, or substantial pottery, anything whatsoever from the early Iron Age period of the United Monarchy. The author continues, There is another explanation for the failure to locate the ruins of David's palace. He never had one. End quote. What? So we there's this brief dismissal earlier on in the article about anything to do with David's palace that Dr. Mazar had found her her uh her groundbreaking work there in the city of David her 
uh, really stunning press release, I Have Found King David's Palace. It very briefly mentions that, but but dismisses it and doesn't talk about even any details as to why Dr. Mazar labeled it that way. And now the author describes this other dig going on in another area, criticizes how there isn't a palace in this area, and then continues to theorize about why no palace has been found of King David. What? And then the article continues some more on politics, more about David Beery's Alad Foundation buying up Palestinian homes. And then finally, the article concludes by taking the reader on a journey into the Negev desert, presenting research that may point to the existence of King David's enterprise, kingdom, whatever you want to call it, uh, as something, quote, bigger than a few tribes, but don't get too excited because, quote, holding our breath for signs of his lavish kingdom would be a mistake. So that was essentially the layout of the article. Most of it, a biographical sketch of Israel Finkelstein, a little peppering of uh, a few paragraphs about Dr. Lot Mazar's excavation of quote-unquote King David's palace, but no details about it. Then later on, a, a peppering of detail about uh, Yossi Garfinkel's excavations and the people working there and those funding it and and Yossi Garfinkel himself, but no detail about what he found. And then a return to Jerusalem, a dismissal of there ever being a palace, and trying to theorize as to why we've never found a palace in Jerusalem. And then a conclusion, far off in a distant southern nomadic desert mining site. So this wasn't a presentation of evidence of archaeology, of even King David. Again, Israel Finkelstein's just about mentioned twice as often in the article as King David. Now, the the article drew some pretty immediate feedback, uh, some of it positive toward the article, some of it critical. And this is what Breaking Israel News published. They published an article in response to this major, big New Yorker piece. Again, this goes before a really large readership. And archaeologists, people in the academic community, really are tuned in to what articles like these have to say. They're not academic articles. They're, they're article articles for the public digest. But academics are really interested in what people say about their profession, what people say about them, what goes before the wider community. And so Breaking Israel News, the organization, they reached out to some, especially to Dr. Mazar, for comment on this New Yorker article. They uh, they also reached out to others, uh, just, to, just to name a couple. Barnia Selavan called it a smear all the way. Uh, Trisha Miller called it inaccurate and biased. And Dr. Mazar gave a quite a lengthy response to this article. And I want to take some time to read through it because it sums it up quite well. This is what uh, Dr. Mazar wrote in response, or at least said over the phone perhaps to Breaking Israel News and what they wrote based on her uh, comments. Quote, The article was about Dr. Finkelstein and had nothing to do with King David. The article did not deal with archaeological evidence or proof. The article therefore cannot claim to represent such an important subject without bringing any of the proofs. Dr. Mazar continues, uh, The article was very well written, which makes it even more of a pity that it was not serious about the subject. And I'll interject there. It, it was very well written. It was, it was quite humorous again in parts. It was a great biography of Finkelstein and his life and even his father. But it wasn't what it was set out to be. It wasn't the title. It wasn't, it wasn't what it was uh, promoted to be, this, this proof or this presentation of evidence as to whether or not King David, this this mighty figure, 
should be pulled pulled down like the like the statues we're seeing falling all around us in society today. Dr. Mazar continues, it is a shame to misguide the public and misrepresent this subject. It is misleading to the public to present the theories of a specific archaeologist as fact when these theories have not been proven by facts and evidence. And I'll interject here, that's that's precisely the case. Israel Finkelstein, he's a theorist. The the article was either a biography of him or a layout of his theories. One theory after another theory after another theory, not based on solid evidence, which wouldn't have mattered anyway because no evidence was presented to speak of in the article itself. So uh, Dr. Mazar continues along these lines. As a researcher, I am deeply concerned about how this type of process affects the process of proofs and evidence. She says, uh, to conclude her, her section, the proofs are stronger than anything else, but what is happening is a focus on errors. This confuses and misleads the public. This confuses and misleads the public. And if the, the article talked about anything at all, it was focusing on errors or supposed errors. It doesn't look at evidence for, for any kind of proofs, for anything, but it's got a, a limited focus on errors. So, so as Dr. Mazar says, this confuses and misleads the public. But it's certainly not an unusual article, as I said from the top of the program. All in all, it's, it was a typical example of bias in a major media piece about the subject. Uh, and, and these kind of scoops aren't that far, few and far between. There are five major, more recent examples that come to mind. Uh, there's a New Yorker, the, so the current New Yorker piece. Before that, last year, there was the Der Spiegel piece. Before that, National Geographic. Before that, New York Times. So the, these four all in the past year. And then uh, in 2017, before that, was a Haaretz article, Is the Bible a True Story? And what's most striking about these articles is precisely how identical they are. Some of them headline different angles, the archaeology of Jerusalem, the historicity of the Bible, historicity of David specifically, but generally they all follow the same layout. They all follow the same pre-prescribed layout, generally in the same order, generally name-checking the same individuals, generally lauding Israel Finkelstein, generally uh, decrying funding bias in excavations, generally uh, claiming biased political motivations, featuring a sort of a desperate plight of Palestinians in Jerusalem, preferably elderly or children. They generally mention Dr. Elat Mazar's excavations, but preferably briefly and dismissively. The list goes on. The list goes on. And I, I ran into a uh, ran across a CBS 60 Minutes segment from a lot earlier, 2010, and I looked up the transcript, and sure enough, it was the uh, same thing, exactly the same thing, exactly the same layout, exactly the same talking points. It's almost boring how precisely similar all of these exposés, shall we say, are. So it's pretty obvious. If you want a generous account of iconoclast scholars. That was uh, Ruth Margulit's word for Finkelstein. If you want that narrative of browbeating narrative of a rich Jewish settler versus impoverished Palestinian children, if you want a foregone conclusion on the side of that, that there's no real evidence for King David, then you know where to look. Haaretz, National Geographic, New York Times, New Yorker, Der Spiegel, 60 Minutes. The list goes on. Uh, but if you want a full and honest examination of archaeology, archaeology, archaeological evidence, 
if you want a review of the evidence, specific discoveries relating to King David, relating to his kingdom, related to uh, any other Israeli-specific discoveries, then perhaps you can forgive my bias, but look no further than Watch Jerusalem. We've got a big uh, archaeological wing of the site. We look at, obviously, news, if you've, if you've been following our website, news uh, on the one side and archaeology on the other, and we've got a smaller subsection on general history. But at Watch Jerusalem, we lay out the evidence. We lay out the evidence for these different uh, events, for these different individuals. And we do draw conclusions at the end, as this author did, as she's more than entitled to do so. But the evidence has to be there for the readers to make up their own mind. Do you want to know why Dr. Mazar identified her large stone structure as King David's palace? We talk about it on Watch Jerusalem. We've got a few articles about the subject, quite a few actually. There were numerous archaeological reasons for this identification. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't a knee-jerk summary of her uh, excavations. It was a long time in the process, a long time coming up with this theory, with with this evidence, and then going and excavating and making her discoveries, discovering whatever she found there, and then presenting that. Do you want to know why Professor Garfinkel believes Kerbet Arai and Kerbet Kayafa relate so precisely to King David's reign? You wouldn't have read about it in the New Yorker article. You can read about that on our website and much, much, much more. So why go through this New Yorker piece? Why do this review of the New Yorker here in this program? Uh, and we'll be, we'll be publishing a, an article about it as, why, as well. Why not let it go? Why not live and let live, shall we say? And Dr. Mazar addressed that somewhat in her reply to Breaking Israel News. To do so would be disingenuous to the public to, to have the public think that this is where the debate lies right now on King David. It's certainly not. It's a presentation of one scholar and his very, uh, very theoretical idea and much criticized idea of the uh, existence of King David, the existence of his kingdom. And the scientific world is built on debate based on evidence, and this article had none. And besides that, I take exception to journalism that, in a brief stroke of a keyboard, uh, undermines before a large audience, a large readership, decades of grueling labor, remarkable uh, archaeologists, grueling labor that they've undertaken, uh, gen- genuine, dedicated, remarkable archaeologists, Dr. Elat Mazar, Professor Yossi Garfinkel, that are just undermined by this, this, this single article before a wide audience, and not to mention attempting to undermine the faith of millions of others with these theories, these little theories of this largely one individual based on little to no evidence. Sure, draw conclusions, sure, but present evidence. Present evidence. The Bible itself taunts the skeptic to do that very thing. And it's, it's interesting to note that while uh, Israel Finkelstein is quoted nearly 40 times in the article, Dr. Mazar quoted very briefly only once, There was no quote from the Bible itself, the defendant, shall we say, in this entire diatribe. But the Bible itself taunts the skeptic to do the very thing that this article does not. This is a quote from Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 22. It's from the New English Translation. It says, quote, Present your argument, says the Lord. Produce your evidence 
says Jacob's king. Let them produce evidence. Again, that's from the New English translation. Produce evidence. Make your conclusions. Do you can, you can the author is fully entitled to conclude whatever they like, but produce honest evidence and the reader can make up their own minds. In conclusion, it's kind of ironic. The the Bible presents David's life as a constant fight against those who would try to undermine him. And we're still doing it today. We're still doing it today. The New Yorker article didn't quote the Bible once, didn't quote David himself once. That would have made for at least a kind of cool quote in there. You've got all these quotes against him in the article. What about a quote? from David himself. And so we'll finish up by reading from one of the Psalms, a couple of quotes along the lines of this article from one of the Psalms. This is from Psalm 102, and it's a Psalm that isn't specifically uh, attributed to King David in this in the sub-superscript, uh, or the subscript, rather. Uh, but the Psalms on either, either side of it are, and Jewish tradition holds that this article, this, this, uh, this Psalm was written by the king. And this is what is written, quote, My enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. My days are like a shadow that declines, and I am withered like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever. And your remembrance unto all generations, you shall arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yea, the set time is come. And finally, the following quote, for your servants take pleasure in her stones and favor the dust thereof. Thanks for joining us on Watch Jerusalem. Uh, If you've got any feedback or comments, you can send those to us at letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. And until next time, thanks for listening.